This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, Canada's largest and most influential association fighting for the interests of Canadians as we age. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Which charities do the most good with your donations? Charity Intelligence is out with its annual rankings. And a memoir from the first female foreign correspondent on network television, Canadian Hillary Brown. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Austria is introducing a lockdown for the unvaccinated. It's already banned them from restaurants, cinemas, ski lifts, and hairdressers, but this means people who have not been vaccinated won't be able to leave home unless it's for essential reasons like going to work, buying food, or exercise. Meanwhile, in Singapore, people who are unvaccinated by choice can no longer receive free COVID-19 treatment. The government says it will no longer cover the medical costs of that group, which makes up the bulk of new cases and hospitalizations. More evidence on the benefit of a Mediterranean diet. Researchers in Greece have found that people with diets high in anti-inflammatory foods like fruits, vegetables, and beans were up to three times less likely to develop dementia as they aged. The study followed more than a 1,000 people with an average age of 73 and monitored their diets for foods that were known to be pro-inflammatory. Researchers found that with each increase towards a more inflammation-inducing diet, there was a 21% increase in risk for dementia. Speaking of a Mediterranean diet, the government of Valencia, the birthplace of paella, has declared the dish an item of cultural significance. The government says the new status for the iconic fish, meat, and rice dish will ensure its survival and prevent what it calls distortions of mass tourism, as well as celebrity chefs who encourage adding ingredients like chicken and chorizo sausage. Charles' former home is up for sale for almost $7 million, but there's a catch. The new owner must be okay with His Royal Highness stopping by to fish. The listing explains that since the home was built in 1906, it's been owned by the Duchy of Cornwall, a private estate that funds public, charitable, and private activities of the Prince of Wales. And it seems that one of those activities is fishing on the property as long as 24 hours' notice is given. This is my dream. Always was my dream, physics. I wanted this, to be a physicist. An 89-year-old Rhode Island man has earned his Ph.D. and become a physicist after working towards it for two decades. Manfred Steiner recently defended his dissertation successfully at Brown University. He dreamed of becoming a physicist his whole life, but his family encouraged him to study medicine instead. Guinness World Records says... 
A 97-year-old man in Germany in 2008 was the oldest person to earn a doctorate, but Steiner is still getting lots of attention. His advice? Do what you love. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. How do you choose the charities you support, and how do you know if your contribution is making an impact? With the holiday giving season about to begin, the nonprofit Charity Intelligence is out with its annual analysis and rankings. I talked with researcher Greg Thompson. We take a look at everything that a charity does. We put a value on all of the changes that it creates for the clients that it works with and for society. We then divide that by their, their total operating costs and get a sort of an efficiency per dollar. That's the, the measure that we, we use to assess charities on their impact. I'm looking at the food bank that I usually support, an A in results reporting, fair demonstrated impact, and 80 cents, 88 cents on the dollar go to the cause. So to me, that looks pretty good. Many donors fall back on, on cents to the cause, and things like salaries and overhead costs uh, as you know, what, they, what they look at when they're looking at a charity. But to us, what matters the most is that demonstrated impact. And that's, that's you know, the release of our, our impact list today is sort of the culmination of all of our work for the, the year um, because you know, that charity that you're looking at has fair demonstrated impact. So it's below average. And so when it's when it's below average, it can it can't get as good a, a star rating. We we dock points in the overall star rating because of uh, because we believe that the demonstrated impact is the is the most important metric on that on that list. How would you measure the impact of a food bank? The way that we do it, we look at, at the benefits to clients and we look at the benefits to society. And so you know there, there's a certain percentage of folks that that are you know. Going to going to be helped, you know, just by getting a little bit of little bit of food to tide them tide them over, and it's a sort of a cost savings for them. Um, it may help them, you know, just defer their rent, uh, you know, be able to pay their rent for a little bit of time to sort of get them over the hump. Uh, and so there's some monetary value that we can put on that. Uh, then there'll be certain uh, set of clients where you know getting that food is vitally important, and uh, you know keeping them from getting malnourished, and uh, and so there's a whole lot of you know, productivity issues involved with that, and income issues involved with that for the client, but then also for society. Uh, if if you know somebody somebody is uh, is requiring all sorts of you know health health benefits and and uh, um, welfare, it's it you know there's a huge cost savings that can that can be had for society by you know just providing folks enough enough food to to you know, either get them over the hump or to to make sure that they don't slip into uh, a, a darker place. What we're looking for in the majority of cases with Canadian food banks is I mean, what is the what is the volume of food and you know, is it is it the right kind of food. Uh, certainly, but what is the volume of food that they're able to to get out to people that you know do have some demonstrated level of of need uh, per per dollar that they're that they're spending? You've said in your report that you think a reasonable level of spending is thirty or thirty five percent in costs, uh, which leaves seventy or sixty five percent going to the cause. Is that right? Yes, I mean we, we've got what we call our, our reasonable range for for overhead costs, which goes from five percent to thirty five percent, as you as you mentioned. So if it's if it's too low, if the charity's not spending enough on on their overhead, there's certain risks involved that the charity may uh, you know may either uh, have troubles continuing on because they're not spending enough on overhead, 
or they may not be reporting accurately. Uh, so that's that's you know on the on the low end, it's a risk. And on the high end, I mean, we we've, we've got one of the charities on our top impact list, list Jump Math, that has forty one cents to the cause. And so most donors look at that and say, I'm not going to give there. But with the the forty one cents that they give to the to the cause, they're still able to make a huge impact. So you know, it's a, it's sort of a, a couple of year blip that they've they've had of, uh, of high costs uh, that hopefully they're going to resolve in the next year or two. Uh, but from our standpoint, it's still you know, worth giving to charities, even if if they you know they may have a high high overhead cost. But if they're able to do a whole lot with the the rest of the the money that they've got, then then we'll still recommend them. Now, you charity intelligence, uh, your charity is listed there. As a five-star charity, did you rate yourself? Uh, we did. You don't think that's a bit of a conflict, rating yourself? I don't believe so. I mean, it's, it's relatively objective. I mean, all of our ratings are, are you know, trying to be as objective as, as possible. And so, you know, yes, by the, the standards that we've created, uh, we believe that we're a five-star charity. Certainly, you know, if if anybody has uh, has other metrics that they would like to judge us on, we would love to love to hear hear about that. Do you have any sense about whether, you know, the level of charitable giving will recover as we seem to be recovering from the pandemic? We're starting to see, um, you know, we looked at 400 or so charities this, this summer, and we're starting to see, you know, what the, some of the effects of the pandemic are. And it's not a huge drop. In, it's more of a, it's more of a, an alignment, a, a change in, in focus. Yeah, people, people gave to more of the frontline charities. They gave more to food banks. Uh, and they gave less to, you know, some of the big hospital foundations that hold those, you know, huge events. They were, they were all canceled. All the major events that take in tens of millions of dollars were canceled. So you know, some of the arts charities, some of the big health charities are going to suffer from that. But, but, you know, personally, I don't think that's such a bad thing because those events are usually very expensive. Uh, so finding, finding less expensive fundraising methods is, is always a good thing. So, you know, in the, in the, you know, awfulness of the of the pandemic uh you know i don't think you know coming out of it charities are are overall in a very bad position uh but they 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 may have learned some things uh through through the course of the pandemic that will serve them in the future greg thompson thanks so much for this thank you very much libby for having me on the show that was greg thompson of charity intelligence i'm libby Snymer, and this is the zoomer week in review coming up Memoirs of a War Tourist. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, where you can meet like-minded people fighting for a new vision of aging. Find out more at carp.ca. She was the first female correspondent on network television. I first met Canadian Hillary Brown when I was a fledgling reporter in the Tel Aviv Bureau of the Associated Press, and she was a star correspondent for NBC. By that time, she had already covered the Vietnam War and the Yom Kippur War. She came by our studios to talk about her memoir, War Tourist. By your early 20s, you were... In Paris, having a fabulous life, getting some interesting work, and uh, you had got in with a group of aristocrats. So how do you get from that to wanting to cover conflict zones? Well, I always wanted to broadcast. I liked writing and I liked performing. So I knew that I wanted a career in broadcasting. 
And then, I mean, you if you go abroad and you see the world outside, yes, you get very interested in what's going on in 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 the big wide world. So, but it was it was impossible at that stage of my life. When was it? It was the early '60s for for a woman to get into TV news. I mean, it was just impossible. So I did public affairs broadcasting for um, I think a total of about seven years before I finally got a job in television news. I was a parliamentary reporter in, in, in Ottawa. A couple of years later, I got the big break of my life, but which was really, and that was becoming the first female foreign correspondent for ABC News. And that was really, because it was timing. It was because of the women's liberation movement. It was because of the pressure they were putting on companies. And the company, this company, ABC News, felt they got to get a dame out there, you know, and uh, as a foreign correspondent, doing something that guys do. At that point, the network correspondents were like the big stars. Mm -hmm. And you were also a woman. So for me, you were a big role model. Oh, yeah. Really? It was the beginning of, mm-hmm. you know, women doing these things. That was the extraordinary story of the Sadat's uh, historic trip to Jerusalem in 1977. Yeah, and at that point I was based in Tel Aviv for NBC News. I, I switched networks for four years. In your book, you said it was some of the best years of your life. It was. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because that was the time that I was able to finally live with my husband we had this marriage where we were separated a lot of the time because of our jobs, but we managed to, to um, he managed to get himself um, assigned by BBC, for whom we worked, to Tel Aviv at the time, and I was working for NBC in Tel Aviv. And we, that was when we found that living together didn't ruin our marriage. <laughs> and then not long after that, I decided that uh, I, was, I really wanted desperately to have a child, and in Israel, you could come home every night, so it seemed all right to, to to do that. And so we did. We had our son, Jonathan, there. Do you have a posting or an assignment that was the most amazing for you? Well, um, you'd have to say, I suppose, Vietnam as an assignment, because it was so historic, you know, the fall of Saigon, and it's so dramatic. And not long after that, I am approached by EMI, I think it was, who said, uh, we loved your reports in Vietnam, and we'd like permission to use them uh, for a movie we're making called The Deer Hunter. And I thought, yeah, yeah right. You know, it'll en- I'll end up on the cutting room floor, but I, I didn't. You also talk about your romantic life, and boy, you were very successful with men. There seemed to be um, a lot of fabulous guys in your life. Uh, there were, yes. And of course, you know, th- I <laughs> was a young woman in the 60s. Yes, and the 60s were really, that was the golden age of sex. You know, it was post-pill, pre-herpes and AIDS, and we were very liberated. And of course, I like men. I do. I've always liked men. And I guess they've always liked me. Oh, they certainly have. I mean, they're, they're, and some of the names there, Leonard Cohen. Yes, yes, Leonard. <laughs> well, but Leonard Cohen, you know, was very friendly with an awful lot of women, yes, as we all was. know. At the very beginning of the book, you talk about what you called a near-death experience yeah. during mm-hmm. the revolution in Iran. In that fanatical all-male mob in Tabriz in Iran, where I thought that they were going to literally tear me limb from limb. In recent years, we have finally heard about what was called the unspoken 
danger of being a female foreign correspondent, which is sexual assault and rape. I was curious about, and I'm sure it was a near-death experience, why you didn't characterize it as sexual assault. No. No, I guess it was. I mean, you could call it sexual assault now. I mean, because I think, you know, it felt as though every male hand in that maw was on or inside my body for sure. And, and that's what has happened to other women in crowds in uh, in other Islamic uh, in other Islamic crowds. Yes. Did you have any trauma or anything after that? No, uh, no, I didn't really. And I felt so guilty vis-a-vis my son, who was then a baby. This is my first cor- my first assignment after his birth, so he was about three months old. So it was guilt more than anything else that was going through my mind. Now you're uh, in quotes retired. I hate the R word. Uh, so do I. I loathe it. I've certainly stopped working, but I, as I recount in the book, I, you know, I was a widow from 2006, and I carried on working in Iraq and other places till 2009, and then a couple of years after that, I, I, I met this incredibly attractive, hyperactive Canadian adventurer, philanthropist, pilot, crazy man, who has taken me around the world all the time in the pursuit of highly dangerous, pseudo-extreme sports. What I think is, that is just like being a foreign correspondent all over again, because he keeps me in a constant state of excitement and fear. So is that it at the end of the day, the excitement and fear? Uh, well, it's it's part of it, yeah. And you know, it's very, it's kind of rejuvenating. I mean, I call it the, it's like the, the elixir of life, actually. Uh, if you keep going... And if you find that, you know, at the age of 70, you, you actually fall in love again. I mean, that's astonishing. I, I never expected that, ever. Can a woman, 70 years and over, fall in love? Well, yes. Absolutely, She yes. can. And she can feel just the way she did, you know, when she was in her 20s and she was crazy in love with you know, some other guy. Yes. And that's wonderful. I, I find uh, it, it's a great source of, uh, of, of joy for me and, and, um, and you know, hope. My philosophy is, it ain't over till it's over. Hillary Brown, thanks so much. (laughs) A pleasure. That was Hillary Brown with her memoir, War Tourist. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi. Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.